2: Hello, we're putting on a glittering light show this month on Naked Oceans to celebrate Guy Fawkes Night and Diwali as we go in search of some of the greatest firework makers of the underwater realm. We chat with ocean bioluminescence guru Edie Widder about the hows and whys of glowing denizens of the deep, and we find out how twinkling lights are helping track pollution in the oceans. I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster Perry.
0: Hello. We'll also be picking our top five sparkly critters with a rundown of some of the most sensational bioluminescent species in the oceans, from gleaming winks to camouflaged squid and glowing seas that can be seen from space. And in Critter of the Month, we'll be asking another marine expert, if you were a marine critter, which would you be and why?
1: And you know, the whole time they're looking at you with this eye that you know has this incredible intelligence this great awareness behind
0: them keep listening to find out which marine expert that was and which critter they picked if you've got any questions do get in touch with us you can tweet us at naked oceans or email us the address is nakedoceans@thenakedscientist.com. at the naked scientist.com
2: you're listening to naked oceans with sarah Costa perry and me helen scales well, let's get things started with a news roundup from, some of, from the world of marine science and conservation. So, Sarah, what have you got for us this month?
0: Well, to kick off, I've got uh, quite a, a story that's quite relevant to our, our theme this month. Uh, I've got a great story about squid that are able to shift their colouration between being transparent and being coloured in order to camouflage themselves against the bioluminescent searchlights of predator fish and from producing a silhouette in downwelling light from above. In different depths of water, different camouflage strategies are most effective. In mesopelagic, that's the mid-level waters, the best strategy is to be transparent. So most squid species here are not pigmented. So they're harder for predators to spot, particularly from underneath. A dark silhouette against the sea surface is a bit of a giveaway. But down in the depths of the ocean, there is very little light, except from species with bioluminescent lures and searchlights, which, of course, we'll be talking about later. These would be reflected by a transparent body, so most species down there are a dark red colour. But what if you're a species that lives in both the deep and mesopelagic zones? Adapting to one of the zones would make you vulnerable in the other. Well, Sarah Zielinski and Sunka Johnson from Duke University in the United States report that two species that they studied, the octopus Japetella heathi and a squid Onychotuthis banksii, are able to shift between being transparent or coloured depending on the depth they're at. Both do it by expanding or contracting pigment cells called chromatophores, When the two species were studied in a tank under ambient lighting, so that's just sort of a a mid-level of light, they both appeared transparent. But when a blue light was switched on and directed at them to mimic the bioluminescent searchlights found in many deep-sea species, they were seen to rapidly expand their chromatophores and take on a sort of scattered deep red pattern. And when reflectance of the surface of Japatella was measured, it was found that it reflected twice as much of the blue light when it was transparent as when the chromatophores were expanded. So when trying to hide from a predator with a bioluminescent searchlight, it pays to be able to turn on your pigment cells so their searchlight doesn't reflect back off you. But then when you go back up into the shallower waters, these species can shrink their chromatophores once more and take on the safer transparent
2: form. It's so so clever. I love it, uh, and I'm just so excited to talk more about bioluminescence today. It's just really a brilliant, brilliant topic. So many ingenious um, adaptations to living in different parts of what is, admittedly, the biggest living space on the planet. But there's so many different parts of it you've got to adapt to.
0: And it's it's also the key point that it's the 3D environment. So if you're an animal on land, you may only have to worry about predators coming from the air. But in the sea, it's kind of every possible direction you could have predators coming at you. So you've got to have strategies for all sorts of different potential predator attacks.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm going to take things back up to the surface now um, and ask the question, what happens when an endangered marine mammal is busy scoffing an endangered fish? Well, that's exactly the conundrum that could soon be facing fisheries managers and conservationists in the Salish Sea in the North East Pacific and that's the home to resident southern killer whales and their favourite food, the Chinook salmon, which are both at-risk species. Well, for the first time, scientists have worked out accurately how many salmon these resident killer whales eat, and hence how much conflict there's likely to be as plans go ahead to restore the depleted populations of both predators and prey. Publishing in the journal PLOS One, the big international research team, including a group from Oceans Initiative, set up a series of computer models linking age, length, weight, sex and energy consumption of killer whales based on information from captured and captive animals. I should just point out they haven't gone out and killed any killer whales themselves, but they used existing information from whaling records. Well, these models were used to then calculate how many fish are eaten on an annual basis by the 87 killer whales. There's only 87 of these particular group left in the Salish Sea. Um, and it turns out that they already eat a lot of fish. It's estimated they eat between 12 and 23% of the salmon from the Fraser River each year. And that's compared to 10 to 40% natural mortality for the same fish. And the killer whale consumption could go up by 75% if efforts to boost their populations are successful. The target is to have a 2% increase every year for the next 28 years. So, obviously this means that we'll need to have a lot more salmon available for all these killer whales to eat. So how are we going to resolve the conflict between endangered predator and endangered prey? Well, short-term measures could include reducing the number of salmon caught by people in fisheries, and then perhaps longer-term steps to boost the productivity of salmon can have some time to kick in. Things like taking out dams, blocking up their migration routes, restoring spawning habitats, and controlling disease spreading from salmon farms. And one solution which I sort of quite like, it's quite a fun idea, um, proposed is that um, the killer whales should be officially allocated their share of the Chinook salmon under the Pacific Salmon Treaty. So in a way, we are sharing resources with wild animals. Well, what this study really does, and I think the important thing about it really, is that it's showing how important it is for us to set aside the old-fashioned single species approach to managing fisheries and protecting species and instead we really need to look at whole ecosystems and consider the interactions between all the different species and that's in this case killer whales, salmon and people.
0: Yeah I think it's, it's definitely a bit of an outdated way of doing things of thinking right we want to conserve this one species therefore we will make the effort with this one species rather than thinking okay so what do they eat What what other species do they need to survive? Is there a, a sort of keystone species within this ecosystem that will affect this other species that we're trying to conserve? So, yeah, definitely a whole ecosystem approach is needed. Okay, Helen, imagine eating a piece of fish that looks, smells and tastes completely normal. But a few hours later, you're stuck on the toilet, vomiting and with tingling in your arms and legs. Not nice. Well, this can happen if the fish you eat is contaminated with ciguatera toxin. This affects fish in tropical waters that eat a dinoflagellate species of algae that make the toxin. And it affects between 20 and 60,000 people every year. And it's the most common form of food poisoning caused by a natural toxin. Now, testing fish for this toxin has up until now been quite a lengthy and time-consuming process involving injecting purified samples into mice and then just watching to see if they become ill which, from an ethical standpoint of having to get through a lot of mice, is not great, and also just the time it takes to do that. Well, now Kentaro Yogi and his colleagues in Japan have developed a much faster and effective way of testing for the toxin, which has also allowed them to identify 15 different forms of the toxin present in fish species caught in different areas, as well as identifying differences in the dinoflagellates responsible for producing the toxin. The team used liquid chromatography tandem mass spectroscopy to analyse the toxins, which were extracted and purified in a similar way to the mouse bioassay method. But the peaks obtained from the analysis were compared with known reference samples of the toxins, and they accurately showed the separate toxins found in the samples of fish. And the team believed that with the production of more reference samples from the various toxins by extraction from natural sources, so fish that have been caught, and through synthetic chemistry as well, so getting people to actually make these toxins from scratch in the lab. Uh, This method using the liquid chromatography uh, could actually improve the speed and accuracy of testing for something that's quite a nasty thing to have.
2: It is, and luckily I um, haven't myself um, had ciguatera, but I do know friends who have, and it's, it's, it's really quite disabling. It's a terrible thing. I think it can go on for years as well. So, like you say, a better way of detecting it and figuring out sources um, has to be a good thing. Well, finally this month, for ocean news, I've got a story about sea turtles. Hooray, we all love sea turtles. And the fact that the little mini-ecosystems that cling to their shells and hitchhike across oceans turn out to be more diverse in the Atlantic compared to in the Pacific. And that's according to a study from Mexico. For three years, a research team led by Eric Laszlo-Wazmi had the tough job of going down to Teopo Beach in Jalisco, Mexico to examine the creatures that have hitched a ride on female green turtles and olive ridley turtles that arrive to lay their eggs in sandy nests. And uh, these hitchhikers are called epibionts, and uh, most of them have actually only been found living on turtles. So they're, they're sort of obligate. They, they aren't found anywhere else. They have to find a turtle to hitch onto. Um, in this specific study, they found a total of 16 species of epibionts. And that included barnacles, crabs, seaweeds, a remora, one of those shark suckers, and even leeches. Um, but so that compares to up to 90 species found attached to shells on sea turtles in the Atlantic, um, which is really quite a big difference. Um, but we really don't know why. It remains a real mystery as to why there's this difference between the two. But the study is published in the Bulletin of the Peabody Museum of Natural History um, and it includes detailed pictures and descriptions of all the species found stuck on these turtles um, with the idea of really giving instructions so that future studies can go back, um, carry on collecting turtle hitchhikers and try and understand a bit more about what's what's going on. Well, don't forget you can find out more about all these month's news stories on our webpage. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
1: Making waves about the underwater world? This is Naked Oceans.
2: November, the time of year when here in the UK we celebrate Guy Fawkes Night. And before you go rushing to Wikipedia to find out what that's all about, here's a quick history lesson. Would you believe it's when us Brits pay tribute to the failed assassination attempt over 400 years ago of King James I? You've got to love tradition. The plan was to blow up the Houses of Parliament by stuffing the cellars full of gunpowder, but the plotters, including Guy Fawkes, were found out. And still today, we like to celebrate by building bonfires, making effigies of Guy Fawkes out of old tights, and setting off a bunch of fireworks. Um, so Sarah, are you a fan of Guy Fawkes Night?
0: Oh, massive fan. I love I love going to see the fireworks. I went to a great display this year. And it's almost more fun to turn away from the fireworks and look at everyone else looking up going, ooh, ah,
2: it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of fireworks, and I like the donuts as well they sell when you go to fireworks, the fireworks shows. Yeah. Um, Well, another festival of lights of this time of year is Diwali, so what better excuse do we have to catch up with some of the greatest firework makers of the ocean world? We're talking bioluminescence, the light produced by living things. Well, fire and water don't normally mix, but there are a huge number of organisms living in the oceans that produce their own light. Coming up, we'll be offering you our pick of the top five sparkling ocean species. But first, to get the lowdown on bioluminescence, I chatted with Edie Widder from the Ocean Research and Conservation Association in Florida.
3: In the open ocean environment, most of the animals make light. You drag a net out there and most of the animals you bring up are producing light. And in some cases, it's 80 to 90 percent of the animals. And it's fish, uh, shrimp squid, jellyfish, and they use it to help them survive. They use it to help them find food, to attract mates, and to defend against predators in all kinds of amazing and bizarre ways. So for finding food, you have um, things like the luminescent lures or built-in flashlights to help them see in the dark. Um, For finding mates, um, they can flash certain species-specific patterns Um, or have light organs that are shaped in a unique fashion that allows one species to identify another. Um, And then for defense, there's just a huge range of different ways of using bioluminescence. For example, quite a few animals can release their bioluminescent chemicals into the water, just the way a squid or an octopus will release an ink cloud. These animals will release their light into the face of a predator, temporarily blinding the predator while they swim away into the darkness.
2: So there are all sorts of things that marine animals do to make homemade light, but how do they make it in the first place? Essentially, it comes down to a reaction between a substrate and an enzyme, generically referred to as luciferin and luciferase, but it's not as simple as that.
3: We think that bioluminescence has evolved at least 40 separate times, maybe as many as 50 separate times. Um, it's a really unusual example of convergent evolution because they've very different chemistries in different animals. I mean some animals use the same chemistries um, and it's even across species and cross phyla, but they're extremely different depending on different cofactors and different enzymes and different substrates. It's just very unusual in that respect. For most of these animals, they're making the chemicals that produce light out of the food that they eat and it's usually some derivation of amino acids and you know the enzymes or proteins. They hold these chemicals in, usually in cells in their bodies, and when they want to make light, there's some activator, usually a nerve action potential that triggers the release of something like maybe calcium or hydrogen that's the missing element that then allows the light reaction to occur. Some animals get their light from bioluminescent bacteria, So they have a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria, but the fish sometimes needs to turn that light off. And so they'll often have mechanical shutters that can close down around the light. In some fish, the light organ actually rotates back into the head, just like the headlights on your
1: Lamborghini.
2: Edie has spent a lot of time miles down beneath the waves studying the glowing creatures of the depths. And she told me about the first time she went down in a submersible. Up until this point, she'd only been conducting research on bioluminescent organisms in the lab.
3: I went down to 880 feet, Uh, it was an evening dive. I turned out the lights and I was just blown away by the amount of light I saw. The bioluminescent light show, it was breathtakingly beautiful but I also knew enough about it at this point to know how energetically costly it was for the animals to produce this light and I thought, this has got to be one of the most important processes in the ocean. I couldn't understand why more people weren't studying it. And it completely changed the course of my career. So a lot of the reason I came to understand that it wasn't being studied more is there weren't tools available for studying it, because clearly you have to do a little bit more than go down and say, oh, wow, everything glows. And so I started working with engineers to develop instruments that could better quantify bioluminescence in the ocean I also started doing more work from submersibles and eventually developed a technique that uses video image analysis to identify the animals by the type of flashes they produce. And it's turned out to be a very powerful tool for mapping the three-dimensional distribution patterns of animals in the ocean.
2: Even with advancing technologies for venturing into the depths in person, Edie began to think about what she was missing
3: of the hundreds of dives I've made into submersibles, I've always felt like, how much is there out there that I'm not seeing because we're scaring it away with our bright lights and noisy thrusters? And so I wanted to develop a camera that could be left quietly on the bottom of the ocean and was battery-powered, but unlike cameras that have been used in the past, I wanted it to be completely unobtrusive. So I um, used uh, red light, sort of the way... um, uh, people studying nocturnal animals use infrared light on land. Um, trouble is, you can't use infrared in the water, in the ocean because it's absorbed so quickly by uh, the water. So um, used far red light and then a camera that was super sensitive to compensate for the fact that so much of that light is absorbed. And so now we've started to study the animals in their natural habitats. Um, and I also developed an optical lure that imitates certain bioluminescent displays. And that's proved very valuable in sort of um, working out this language of light and what animals, what kind of displays different animals respond to.
2: As well as learning about fascinating lives of glittering deep sea species, Edie and her team at the Ocean Research and Conservation Association have also started applying their bioluminescence research to help solve some of the problems facing the oceans.
3: One of the big ones is tracking pollution. Uh, We have a lot of problem with non-point source pollution, which is um, things like fertilizer and pesticides running off of cropland, animal waste out of animal feedlots, toxic cocktails of hydrocarbons that run off our roads every time uh, we have a rainstorm, Um, just all kinds of things that are running off the land and having a very profound effect on uh, coastal ecosystems. And so I felt like what we really want to do here is make pollution visible. And so we're actually using bioluminescence to do that. We use bacterial bioluminescence. The reason the bacteria glow all the time is that the bioluminescence is linked to the respiratory chain. So basically the breathing of the bacteria. And any pollutant that interferes with that dims the light. So the bioluminescent bacteria are sort of akin to a canary in a coal mine. You know, miners used to take a canary down with them before they had sensors that could detect the poisonous gases that they had to be concerned about. They knew when the canary stopped singing or keeled over that they better get out of there very quickly. Um, And that's what's known as a broad-spectrum bioassay. You're not measuring for a specific pollutant, but a whole range of them. And that's what the bacteria do for us. So we take sediment samples. When you're talking about water pollution, most of the water pollution actually resides in the sediments. So we, we take sediments and then test the bacteria against these sediments and figure out where the toxins are accumulating in the environment. And then we've also measure, uh, developed um, a water quality monitoring system called a Kilroy, because um, we hope these guys are going to be everywhere, that allows us to track the pollutant back to its source. My dream is to get a pollution layer onto Google Earth. Um, so that people can see the pollutants in their own backyards and in their favorite waterways, and then work together to figure out what we can do to solve these problems.
2: It was such a joy speaking to Edie. She is so enthusiastic about. Um, she's just so obviously obsessed and enthused by by bioluminescence in the deep sea, and I'm completely jealous. She spent so much time down in the deep sea. And um, something else she mentioned, which was pretty awesome, is the fact that. That um, bioluminescence is all the way through, the top to the very de- depths of the ocean. And in fact, um, when when people, for the one time only so far, went to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean, they turned the lights on of the submarine, and there was a fish with eyes. Which and the only reason it could have possibly have eyes is because there's bioluminescence down there. So, um, and she was saying how now it's the it's the commercial. It's amongst these private individuals, people like James Cameron and and Richard Branson, to get into the deep and and build some and get down there. And and Edie wants to know what they see when they get there. Is it full of light? We think the answer has to be yes. That was Edie Widder, founder of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association in Florida, introducing the firework makers of the oceans and how she's putting bioluminescence to work in helping to safeguard the oceans. Well, you can see some fantastic pictures of the extraordinary animals that Edie works with on our website, as well as links to find out more about her work beneath the waves. That's all at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
1: Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
0: You're listening to Naked Oceans with me, Sarah Castor-Perry, and with Helen Scales. And this month we're celebrating Guy Fawkes Night and Diwali, exploring the stunning fireworks displays put on by ocean inhabitants. We've just heard from Edie Widder about how bioluminescence happens in the oceans, and there's no doubt there are some bizarre creatures down there that produce light. So we've sifted through them and come up with our pick of what we think are the top five firework makers that live in the sea. So I'm going to start us off uh, with our first critter, which is a type of jellyfish called Aquiora victoria, or the crystal jelly, which is found off the west coast of North America and out into the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's just a little small jellyfish growing up to around 10 centimetres across. And it's well-named as the crystal jelly. It's almost completely colourless, but it does show luminescence in a little ring around the bottom edge of the main body. The protein that causes the greenish glow of the crystal jelly's luminescence is known as GFP, the green fluorescent protein. Now, when the jelly is startled, its cells release calcium ions that excite a bluish-coloured protein called aquarin, which then stimulates the GFP to glow. Asamu Shimamura first extracted GFP from the crystal jelly and now it's used in all sorts of other areas of biology and particularly to stain cells for fluorescent microscopy because the good thing about GFP is that unlike most stains that you use to stain cells to look at under a microscope it's not toxic to living cells so it can be used to look at living tissues under the microscope and there are several mutations of the GFP protein that have been developed. You've got blue fluorescent protein, yellow fluorescent protein, cyan fluorescent protein, and actually red fluorescent protein has been extracted from corals. So not from this jellyfish, but from another ocean species. Uh, These can all be attached to different proteins or structure in the cells and then see how they interact as the cell is going about its daily business. There's also been several transgenic animals produced by modifying their genes. So they produce GFP. Uh, There've been mice, There's zebrafish, which you can actually buy in pet shops, which might be quite fun to have a glowing zebrafish in your tank at home. Uh, And even transgenic glowing rabbits. I think that would look a bit creepy. Maybe something for Halloween. Uh, The crystal jellies have quite an interesting and bizarre life cycle. They alternate between a sessile, or ground-dwelling hydroid form, and the swimming medusa form, which is the the type that we would recognise as the jellyfish. The Medusae, the jellyfish themselves, are either male or female and they release gametes into the water, uh, which meet and fertilise and then settle onto the seabed and grow into these hydroid colonies. And then in the spring, the colonies bud off more little tiny Medusae into the water column that then grow, start producing gametes and die after about six months. So they're a really good example of how the oceans are helping to advance other areas of research, which I think is a key point to mention when we're talking about conservation you know, this is a a point that's made about the rainforest on land as well, the potential for new drugs and things like that. In these
2: untapped areas, it's it's a major reason to conserve species and ecosystems as well. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard people say that discovery of GFP was like the discovery of the microscope. That's how important it is. And that's how useful it's been in, in research. It's fantastic. Well, I nearly chose for one of my top firework makers the the bioluminescent dinoflagellates that glow in the sea when you go diving in the right time in the right place and they just flash these fantastic lights when you
0: move I think
2: those are in the beach aren't they in that film where they go swimming in that lagoon and you move your hand through the water and it staffles them and they produce all this it's fan it's absolutely brilliant I mean it's it, it does happen that day, it really does. Um, you know, you can basically have a lot of fun pretending to be an underwater wizard because you can throw fireballs, um, you can just, you know, it's fantastic. And I've actually um, been swimming one time at night and come out and it's stuck to my skin so that if you actually then draw with your finger on your skin, it glows again. It's like you're kind of covered in this sort of crazy paint. It's fabulous. I'm not using them, haha, so I'm cheating slightly. But because um, of those d- dinoflagellates only flash when they're disturbed. But there's another phenomenon in the ocean that just glows constantly. And that is a thing called the milky seas effect. And it's a surreal nighttime phenomenon that mariners have puzzled over for hundreds of years. It's called milky because it looks white, but it's actually blue. Um, But it's such low light that, in fact, your eyes are just using your rods, which don't distinguish colour. So it looks white. Um, And it went unexplained for a long time. But it's uh, it's still pretty mysterious. But we think the latest theories are that it's caused by a type of bioluminescent bacteria, fibrio harvii. And these glowing seas have been spotted from space. This is fantastic. The discovery is all thanks to a meteorologist called Steve Miller. Um, Back in 2003, he was basically pondering the idea of, could you see glowing seas from space? Could we do this? Is it possible? Um, Everyone said, no, don't be stupid. It's far too brief. Um, It's not bright enough. There's no way you could do it. But he was determined to see if he could figure this out. So, like all good scientists, he went straight to the internet and hunted around for descriptions of the Milky Seas effect. And he found a report from a ship, the SS Lima, from January 1995. Um, And it was in the northern Indian Ocean. And it went something like this. 2200 local time, on a clear, moonless night, a whitish glow was observed on the horizon. And after 15 minutes of steaming, the ship was completely surrounded by a sea of milky white colour and with a fairly uniform luminescence. The bioluminescence appeared to cover the entire sea area from horizon to horizon And it appeared as though the ship was sailing over a field of snow or gliding over clouds. Isn't that wonderful? So um, basically, Steve got this report and then he wanted to figure out if that particular um, milky sea could be spotted from space. So he teamed up with some other researchers, including bioluminescence expert Steve Haddock from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, And they sifted through satellite images, and lo and behold, there was the Milky Sea, spotted from space, in exactly the right place and the right time, as S.S. Lima's description. It turned out to be an enormous patch of glowing sea. It measured 15,000 square kilometres, the size of the county of Yorkshire, if you're a Brit, or the state of Connecticut, if you're in the US. Everyone else will just have to figure out how big that is. Um, A satellite image showed the glow for three consecutive nights, between the 25th and the 27th of January. And check this out. Weirdly... It's the same date, the 27th, although 100 years earlier, that the passengers on board the Nautilus in Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, in a very similar part of the ocean, sailed through a milky sea. How weird is that? It only happens in the right conditions, and that's when there's a huge concentration of bacteria. It's estimated that this particular milky sea had 40 billion trillion bacteria, and that's quite a lot. In fact, if you had a grain of sand for every one of those bacteria... You'd cover the entire planet to a layer 10 centimetres thick in sand. It's huge. Anyway, I had a quick chat with Steve Miller the other day, um, and he said that since that 2005 paper came out describing this satellite spotting the Milky Sea in the Indian Ocean, he's had lots of reports from sailors of Milky Seas, but so far they haven't had any satellite images to match it up. Um, Because we're really talking extremely low light levels here, you've got to have very sensitive um, satellite images. Um, But the good news is that in October, just past, NASA launched a new satellite called NPP, and it's carrying a new improved low-light sensor. So that does increase the chances of spotting another Milky Sea from space, and it perhaps gives researchers a chance to dash out on a ship and grab some of the seawater in the same place. And Steve told me if that happens, he's going to put down his science hat and just frolic around in the glow. But I mean, is that safe? So can you get? I mean, can, would you get
0: infections from those kinds of bacteria or is it just a kind of a safe thing to go
2: swimming in? It's a really good question. I mean, these are bacteria that are all the way through the oceans that just at very low concentrations compared to milky seas. But no, I think i might have to ask Steve that one, perhaps get him to go first, <laughs> see what happens. Um, but there's some if you want to check out, there's some great pictures that, from Steve's work um, on our website and some links so you can find out more about this fantastic study.
0: Well, following on with a, a very similar uh, story, also using a slightly different species of uh, bioluminescent bacteria, Vibrio fischeri. So my second choice of critter uses bioluminescence to make itself invisible, which Sounds a little counterintuitive, but stay with me. Uh, The problem with living in the 3D environment of the ocean, as I said earlier, is that a predator can come at you from any angle, you know, from the sides, from above or from below. And many species actually show counter-shading, where the underside of the body is coloured lighter than the top of the body. And this is to counteract the shading of being lit from above, from the, the, the light from the sun coming through the ocean surface. But some species go further than just counter-shading. Uh, several species of squid use bioluminescence on the underside of their body to try and match the colour of the light coming down from above. So if a predator sees them from below, they don't see a dark shape against the light ocean surface, but the squid becomes practically invisible. Uh, the idea of ventral bioluminescence as a form of countershading was supported by evidence from several species, but it was only when an on-board study of squid caught in the open ocean in the 1970s and exposed to light from above showed that they fluoresced on their undersides to match the light level coming from above, and this proved that this was a strategy that was being used. Uh, the results have been confirmed several times, again, by other researchers uh, and some of the most recent research has been into the Hawaiian bobtail squid, which I have to say is one of the cutest squid I have ever seen. It's, it's like Disney have specifically drawn it to be round and cute. And they're also known as dumpling squid or stubby squid. They are just adorable. Well, these squid have a symbiosis with the bioluminescent bacteria Vibrio fischeri. obviously a relation of the bacteria that you were talking about. Uh, which live in special crypts in two paired areas of the squid's body known as the light organs. Now, the light organs have a reflective inner surface close to the body so that all of the light gets directed downwards away from the inside of the squid's body. And they also have a lens-like structure on the outside to help diffuse the light. And by using the muscles that are also controlled to, used to control its ink sac. The squid can change the size and shape of the organ and how much light
2: is emitted. So it can match the light coming from above exactly and just practically disappear. In the mollusk um, group, there are lots of glowing squid and, and octopus and so on. Um, but in fact, for gastropods, the, the seashells, um, there's really hardly any bioluminescence except for a brilliant little creature, which is my next choice, Hinea brasiliana, also known as the cluster wink. Um, which has to be the best name for a creature. Um, basically, they're, they're called that because they group together in crevices at low tide. These live on the tide on the coasts of Australia. Um, and apparently, um, once the tide comes in, they all wake up and scoot around busily. But when it, when, when tide's out, they all cluster together, hence Cluster Week. It's a family planaxidae. Um, and uh, when they're just sitting there in the daylight, they look like just little yellow shells, fairly normal little shells but put one in the dark, poke it, and it glows bright green. Um, it's called. It's basically a kind of a burglar alarm. The idea is that it's, it's shouting out for help and essentially saying, help, help, I'm being attacked, um, to attract perhaps other predators of the thing that's attacking them, and basically to make themselves look bigger. Um, and a study, a, couple, a study came out earlier this year that looks into how this happens, because what they have is two blobs of light-emitting um, cells inside the shell, inside their bodies, Um, But it comes out of this kind of constant, a whole glowing shell, a bit like a light bulb, essentially. And it it turns out it's the crystalline structure of the shell that's specifically filtering and diffusing the light to amplify it. Um, And it does it better than any commercially available material that we use to do similar things. It only works with green light. Red and blue light just get stuck. They don't get transmitted through the shell. And uh, it's really awesome. The researchers are now looking at trying to biomimic this, this structure to try and make things that we can use for ourselves. And they're also looking at other members of the Plaxonidae family to work out um, how this particular fireworks trick evolved.
0: That's very cool. I like the idea of a little snail that's also a light bulb. That's very cute. Well, our final, final critter is is probably one of the best known bioluminescent species. It's the anglerfish, uh, particularly the family serratidae, also known as the sea devils, uh, which is a pretty good name because they are these ugly, ugly deep sea fish with the long manoeuvrable lure on their heads that glows at the end. I don't know if you've seen Finding Nemo but the the big ugly fish that they find in the deep sea with a little the little light that Dory and Marlin see yeah so that's that's an anglerfish essentially
2: Edie actually said when I was talking to her that she's really cross. She loves that they had that fish in Finding Emo, but its eyes are the eyes of a fish that's been brought back up to the surface and they're popping out. So all they needed to do was basically have a chat with a scientist who'd say, ah, ah that's not quite right. Never mind. What a shame. Uh, well,
0: OK, so the lure, the, the sort of lure with the light on the end of these anglerfish is made up of a spine that has migrated throughout evolution from being attached to the front of their dorsal fin to be above their head. And it's, it's completely mobile and it can be waved around in all directions to, to lure prey. But it may possibly also be used to attract a mate, which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, the very end of the lure is full of bioluminescent bacteria called photobacteria. So these fish don't bioluminesce in the same way as the crystal jellies. They they bioluminesce in a similar way to the squid. They attract these bacteria that then enter the bulbous end of the lure through pores. And once they're inside, they gain nutrients and protection from being inside their host. And the fish gains the ability to use the bacteria's bioluminescence. It's a symbiotic relationship. Now, while the lure is used just like a fishing lure, hence the name anglerfish, to lure prey, there is the suggestion that they might also attract mate by using them as well. Uh, only the females have the lures, and the sexual dimorphism, the difference between males and females of the species of these fish, is extraordinary. The, the females are reasonably large. You know, They can be from a few centimetres in the smaller species to over a metre in the case of Croyer's deep-sea anglerfish, But the males are tiny. In Croia's anglerfish, while the female can be over a metre long, males are generally only about 14 centimetres long. Uh, And in the smaller species, the males are so tiny that originally researchers that brought these fish up to the surface thought they were some kind of weird parasite living on the female specimens that they caught. So possibly, along with their really acute olfactory senses, the males can find the females by following their lures. and They then attach to the female permanently actually fusing with her bloodstream and gradually atrophying so just sort of dying until they're simply just a pair of gonads that release sperm into the female in response to hormonal cues in her blood and this may sound completely bizarre but it's quite a good strategy if individuals are of, individuals of a species are scarce and widely spread out having the male attached to her body all the time means that the female has a ready supply of sperm whenever she releases an egg so it's a good strategy really.
2: Yep, it makes perfect sense, the deep sea. And apparently sometimes they bring up females and they're covered in quite a few different males. So they, they can collect, collect males so they've got as much sperm as they need. Well, there you have it. Our top pick of glowing, glittering, sparkling ocean creatures. You can find out more about all those varieties of light makers as well as links to some great studies about ocean bioluminescence at our webpage. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
0: Well, that's almost it for this episode of Naked Oceans, but we've just got time to catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be, and why. Here's our Critter of the Month.
1: Hello, my name is Brian Scarry, and I'm a wildlife photojournalist specializing in marine wildlife, underwater and ocean subjects. And if I were a marine creature, I think I would like to be an orca, uh, otherwise known as a killer whale. I suppose that's... um, somewhat of a, a shallow statement in the sense that I've I've chosen the, the most supreme creature in the sea, perhaps uh, an animal that I at least believe reigns supreme over pretty much everything else. So um, I guess that tells you something about me. But anyway, I am just so impressed with Orca. I think that they are on a level quite unlike anything else. I, I'd like to think that they're much smarter than human beings and that they have this ability and awareness that we can't even begin to understand. I've only encountered orca a few times throughout my career in the ocean. Uh, the first time I had a real close encounter with them was back in 1994. I was in the Norwegian Arctic and diving, or free diving, very, very cold water, in a place where they were gathering to feed on herring over the winter. It was just magical. The, the cliffs and the fjords were, were immense and kind of spooky. It was this beautiful purple light in the sky. The sun never got very high at that time of the year. This was in October. But on a few occasions, I was able to get underwater with my dry suit, no scuba tank, just free diving down, and, and see these animals in, in pods and in groups. I had one day where a young orca, a juvenile, a baby, kind of broke off from its mom. And came around and just circled me and you know the whole time they're looking at you with this eye that you know has this incredible intelligence this great awareness behind them I've had the privilege of being with many great underwater creatures from tiny ones to giant ones and marine mammals are always very special because they are choosing to interact with you you know they are making that decision that they want to know more about you and they're curious but an orca is is quite unlike anything else. You know, they have this depth, this soul, if you will, that, you know, goes back eons. And if only we could tap into that, I think we could learn so much. So the notion of coming back if uh, if I could be reincarnated or if I could just snap my fingers and, and become an orca, I think would be pretty magical because I would learn so much about the ocean and have the ability to travel great distances and interact with everything else that lives in the sea.
0: That was Brian Scary with those amazing, intelligent hunters, the orcas or killer whales. And did you know they are, in fact, just big dolphins? They're a member of the Delphinidae family, which is the ocean dolphins. This month, Brian's fantastic new book, Ocean Soul, is published. It's a collection of some of his most stunning underwater photographs from his career, taking pictures for National Geographic magazine. So well worth checking out. And you can find lots more ocean experts picking their top critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
2: Well, that's it for this sparkly edition of Naked Oceans. Many thanks to Edie Widder and Brian Scarry. We'll be back with more ocean science and conservation, same time, same place, next month. Until then, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
1: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.